Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Every Square Inch. My name is Robert Cunningham, and this podcast is my attempt to think critically and Christianly about the world around us. This episode is going to be the first of a two-part series containing some thoughts and reflections from my 16 years of pastoral ministry. For those who don't know, I have recently stepped away from uh, leadership at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church, where I served happily for over 15 years, uh, to follow Jesus into a new unconventional pastoral calling. I'm very excited about what God has before me, which uh, will officially launch at the beginning of the new year. And I will record a podcast detailing all of that when it is uh, introduced. But first, I did want to record some concluding thoughts and observations as I have processed what has been um, an amazing 15-plus years of pastoral ministry. And I do emphasize amazing. I I love TCPC, and TCPC uh, loved me so well. And part of the reason I feel so free to record these reflections from my time in ministry is because it was such a healthy season for me and my church. Now, usually this podcast is aimed at a wider cultural audience, but occasionally um, I will record something that is uh, specific for Christians and uh, churches, and that's what this will be. Originally, I was going to just do one episode, but that episode, not surprisingly, has turned into two. And so here's how I am going to approach it. I want to record one podcast for pastors and those in church leadership And then I want to record a podcast for the congregants that they serve. So this one is for the pastors. The next one will be for the laity. Okay, first, some thoughts for pastors and leaders in the church. Although I will say, now that I say that, I do think this will be a good resource for uh, leaders in general. Much of what I'm going to say will apply to anyone in a position of leadership, not just church leadership. Um, So I don't feel comfortable posturing myself as some kind of expert here. Uh, I did take some time to process and journal all the things that that we, by God's grace, accomplished, and it was overwhelmingly encouraging, but I think I'll just, you know, thank the Lord for that and not (laughs) parade it on a podcast. But I did also process some mistakes that were made along the way, lessons that I had to learn, and in many ways I am still learning, And I do feel comfortable sharing those with you. So I suppose this will be a learn from my mistakes podcast, so to speak. Now, there are many I could share, but I don't think it would be very helpful for me to share the obvious ones. Of course, I wish I prayed more than I did. Of course, I wish I wasn't so duplicitous in what I preached versus what I practiced. I wish I didn't let criticism bother me as much as it did. I wish I didn't let praise puff me up as much as I did. All of those common struggles are true, and I don't want to dismiss them, but I'm assuming pastors and leaders have heard those before. More than that, are keenly aware of them in their own lives. Instead, I thought what would be helpful is to share some unique struggles with you, that mistakes that I made and perhaps you are making that maybe don't get noticed or talked about as much when discussing pastoral leadership. And I thought of five that I want to share with you. Uh, These are in no particular order, no rhyme or reason, honestly. Just as I process some thoughts that came to mind uh, from my uh, years in ministry. So five of them. Here's the first. Uh, Too often I lived too far out in front of my staff and certainly my congregation. Here's what I mean. 
So I spend my weeks praying, thinking, dreaming, hours upon hours of processing going on in my head. And from those hours of contemplation, ideas are born. Ideas I'm very excited about, ideas that make perfect sense to me because I've been processing them for weeks, perhaps months. And in excitement, I bring them to staff or elders or even the congregation and just, you know, boom, drop the idea bomb on them. And it's met with confusion or perhaps even bewilderment. And there are questions, concerns, feedback, uh, and pushback. And in that moment, the pastor, or I would say this is true of leadership in general, the leader is tempted to respond with defensiveness. Why are you questioning this? Why, are, why aren't you excited? How can you not understand? How can you not see how great this is? Well, I'll answer all of those questions for you from my own experience. They were not privy to hours upon hours of my own headspace. I had to learn that it was unfair to expect my staff and certainly my congregation to be way down the visionary road with me. I had to patiently walk down that road with them, and patience is not a virtue of mine. But I had to learn it, because every time I didn't act with patience, I regretted it. Pushback and feedback is not personal. It's procedural. They're not against me, and they're not against my ideas. They're trying to comprehend what's been going on in that crazy head of mine. And so, in a sense, ideas require a two-step process for any leader. First, they need to take hold in your mind. That's one process. Then you have to embrace the process of your vision taking hold in the life of a congregation or an organization. And what you will discover is that through that second process, through the sifting of questions and feedback and helpful critique, the idea is refined and improved and turns out far better than it would have if I just dropped it on my church and demanded they embrace it because my insecurities can't handle any feedback. So mistake one, at times I was too far out in front of my staff, leadership, and congregation. Now, thankfully, I had a team that would slow me down and weren't afraid to even shut me down. (laughs) But that did tend to be a besetting struggle for me as a pastor and leader. All right, mistake two. I worked harder on people's sanctification than they were willing to work. Now, this was a mistake that I corrected several years ago. It actually became a theme of our pastoral care. We as pastors are not going to work harder on your sanctification than you are willing to. Now, here's what I mean by that. Uh, You're a pastor. You love your people. You see them struggling, uh, making harmful choices, living destructive habits. It's so obvious that changes need to be made and what those changes are. Your heart bleeds for your congregation as it should. But, and I cannot emphasize this enough, you must be thoughtful careful, dare I say strategic, with that love. You are a pastor. You are not the Holy Spirit. And what this means is that you are a servant of the Holy Spirit's work, not the other way around. You follow the work of God's Spirit among your flock to feed the sheep that are hungry to be fed, to lead the sheep that are eager to be led, to care for the sheep that welcome your care. You go where the wind of the Holy Spirit goes rather than trying to be the Holy Spirit in your congregation yourself. And here's why I'm saying that. Early on in pastoral ministry, I often found myself in one of two situations. First, I was urging some people to go where they were simply unwilling to go, effectively begging them into repentance. And I would get so frustrated when they would not respond. 
Or the other situation, people who claimed to want to grow, but they were unwilling to do what it took to grow. They, they liked to meet with me. They liked discussing their problems, meeting after meeting of processing these types of things. And they even seemed interested in change, but we would get caught in the cycle of the same conversations, the same applications, the same meetings that seemed to be promising, but in the end led nowhere. In both instances, I spent so much pastoral time and energy trying to disciple those who at the end of the day didn't want to be discipled, all while neglecting those who did. And so we as a pastoral team just started saying, we're not going to work harder on people's sanctification than they are willing to work. And I would literally say that to people. I would say, listen, I'm here. We're here. Our church is here to help you in any and every way we can, but we're not going to work harder on you than you are willing to work on you. Now, that may seem callous, but it's very Christ-like. He told a parable of a father who allowed his son to leave for a far-off country, and the father didn't chase him or grab him or even beg him to stay. He let him go until he got sick off his waywardness and then eagerly received him back. On another occasion, Jesus rebukes a rich man for his love of money. The rich man went away from Jesus, choosing his money over Jesus, and Jesus let him go. Pastors have got to be willing to do this. What it means is you're going to have to be comfortable with people in your pews who just aren't taking Jesus seriously like you want them to, or people who have left your church and forsaken Jesus altogether. It doesn't mean you give up on them. You love them, you pray for them, you welcome them, you eagerly await their awakening, but you don't give all your time and energy hoping against hope that they are at a place they simply are not. Honestly, for me, it was an issue of repentance of my own pride. I had the audacity to believe I had the gifts, the skills, the argumentation, the persuasion to break through with anyone. And I had to learn the insanity of that arrogance. And I had to repent. Again, the pastor is not the Holy Spirit. The pastor works in service of the Holy Spirit, following the Spirit wherever he blows, giving pastoral attention to the aftermath of the Holy Spirit's work. Okay, third mistake. I allowed the vocal minority to override the silent majority. Now, this is just Leadership 101, but it's especially true in churches. When I get to my podcast directed to the congregants, I'm going to discuss the importance of making positive opinions known. But here's the reality. By and large, if the pastor's hearing feedback, it's probably negative feedback. And so here is how you could interpret that. Goodness, 100% of the feedback here is against this, whatever this may be, your preaching, the music, uh, philosophy of ministry, a strategic decision, whatever it is, You've got this feedback coming your way, and it's all critical. The temptation will be to give that feedback undue weight. After all, it's 100% negative. And so in genuine humility, you, you want to take that criticism seriously, and that's great. But here's the feedback you need to take more seriously. The deafening silence of the happy majority. If they aren't giving feedback, assume they are happy or at minimum ambivalent, meaning they don't have a strong opinion. They're good. They trust you. If they weren't happy or at least ambivalent, they would let you know, or they would leave. That's the good thing about churches, right? They will let you know, or they'll leave, which means that they're not letting you know, and they aren't leaving. You can just assume they are supportive until proven otherwise. 
What I'm trying to say here is you ought to be listening to those who are not talking. Learn from my mistake that consistently gave disproportionate weight to the negative feedback while ignoring the hundreds upon hundreds of happy people content with my pastoral leadership. So here's an exercise for you. Suppose you're a pastor of a 200-member congregation, and you've got 15 critical emails in your inbox regarding something. I know the feeling. It's overwhelming. You'll be tempted to despair, to make big changes based upon those 15 emails, or just not know what to do. You're just paralyzed by the pushback. Here's what you ought to do. Put the issue up on a whiteboard, and then write 15 opposed, 185 in favor or at least ambivalent. You're not going to ignore the feedback of the 15. There is kernels of truth to find in any criticism. But you're sure not going to run an anxious institution based upon 15 opinions while ignoring the 185. Never forget the happy, content, silent majority. Okay, next, next mistake. Too often I chose fear over love. I think people probably perceive me as a confident leader, but those closest to me know that I, I, what I battle is fear. When I am in an unhealthy place, fear is where I turn. Fear of others' opinions, fear of disappointing others, uh, fear of the consequences of doing what is right. So a facade of confidence masking a chaos of fear. And if you are a pastor listening to this, chances are you can relate. This is every pastor's story in many ways. Well, here's what I had to learn, and I I hope you will learn it too. A fearful pastor cannot, by definition, be a loving pastor. For there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. It's interesting that fear is the antithesis of love in that verse, but it's true. And let me show you how it plays out in the pastorate. You cannot love the congregant you fear. You fear their disapproval. You fear their gossip. You fear their criticism. You fear their money. Whatever the source of your fear may be, it's standing in the way of your love of them. Because that fear leads to one of two outcomes, neither of which are loving. First, you won't pastor them. You will cater to them. You won't say what needs to be said. You won't take a stand you need to take. You won't be honest when you need to be honest. Instead, fear leads to a constant maneuvering to avoid what you fear. And that's not pastoring, that's posturing. Or the other thing that fear does is it just leads to bitterness. You see, sometimes you can't posture your way out of disapproval, can you? Some will always criticize, always gossip, slander. Some will take their tithe elsewhere. Those things will happen. And here's what fear does to those things. It turns them into a threat. If you fear their gossip, they are now a threat to you. And threat inevitably turns people into enemies. If a pastor is threatened by someone in their congregation, they cease to view that person as a congregant to be loved. They are now an enemy to be defeated. Now, I had it good. I had the honor of serving a church that loved and supported me far better than I deserved. That's not flattery. That is fact. But TCPC is not a perfect church. And I certainly was not a perfect pastor. So, of course, there were people I struggled with and people who struggled with me. That's going to happen. But when fear enters the equation, those struggles become something sinister. Either I would cater to them or grow bitter toward them. But in either case, I failed to love them. 
Do not fear your people. Love them. How? Easier said than done, right? How do you love them? I would suggest two things that work for me. Pursue them and pray for them. Pursue them with hospitality. It's easy to fear someone from afar in your vain imaginations. It's tough to fear a person across the table from you. Instead, you will grow to love them, even with all their quirks and criticisms. Pursue them, and then also pray for them. At the top of your prayer list should be the congregants that are hardest for you and hardest on you. Those people you are tempted to fear. Put them at the top of your prayer list because prayer cultivates love, and that love for them will drive out your fear of them. Okay, one more mistake to share here. Renounce the pervasive self-pity that is everywhere in ministry. Listen, I get it. No other vocation has burnout rates like the pastorate for a reason. You are underpaid, underappreciated, undervalued, all while expected to be overly available, overly evaluated, overly criticized, and so forth. I promise I get it. The reason I can say what I'm about to say is because I know what it's like. You're not allowed to say to me, you just don't understand, because I do understand. That being said, as hard as it is, it is still no excuse for self-pity. And I say that in full confession that self-pity is often where I turned in my ministry struggles. But please, take it from me. Self-pity is not the comfort you think it to be. Self-pity is a form of vanity because it is where the vain turn when they are not treated like they think they deserve. And it is rampant in pastoral ministry. It's almost expected among pastors. Woe is me. Nobody understands me. Nobody appreciates me. My life is so hard. Pastors notoriously baptize this line of thinking. And I am willing to admit at times I was the chief of self-pity centers. It's just so easy to do. But self-pity is not fitting the followers of Jesus and certainly not those ordained to lead the followers of Jesus. Now, there absolutely is room for lament in ministry. In many ways, your life will be filled with lament. After all, your job is the business of trauma. But there is a difference between lament and self-pity. It's tough to discern the difference in those two in the moment, but you will see it in the fruit that it produces. Lament softens you and leads you to God. Self-pity hardens you and leads you to self-indulgence. That's why self-pity is so dangerous. You get hardened and you start to believe you deserve indulgence. In its worst forms, the pastor's self-pity leads to an affair or a hidden addiction, something heinous that they justify as this secret indulgence that they deserve because their life is so hard. But for most, it's overeating or overdrinking or overentertainment or neglecting your marriage and children, neglecting the spiritual disciplines. I'm, I'm in the Word all week. I don't have time. I don't, I'm exhausted. I don't want to spend time alone with the Lord devotionally. This line of thinking, self-pity leads to self-indulgence. It is a dangerous sin that we have somehow made acceptable in the ministry. And I'm just warning you from personal experience, it does not provide the comfort you desire. It will ruin you not comfort you. So let me tell you the way I fought self-pity in my life. Here's what I would do, and it, it, it seemed to work for me. Maybe it will help you. What I would do when I'm tempted to self-pity and despair is I would go to the beginning and the end of my ministry calling. Here's what I mean. 
I would I would often uh, go back just in, in prayer or just in thought. I would just go back to the beginning and dwell there. That childlike, naive, joyful, I'm so on fire for Jesus and I want to tell the whole world about him beginning stage. You remember that, don't you, Pastor? Remember before the scars of ministry how much you wanted to be a minister? Remember the I'll go anywhere, do anything, suffer for you, Jesus, phase of life? Well, go back to that. Dwell there. Remember your first love. Remember why you began this crazy journey in the first place and ask the Lord to revive that once again. But more importantly than the beginning of your calling, go forward to the end of your calling. Do not pity the pastorate. Yes, it is a unique cross, but friend, awaiting you very soon is a unique crown. Jesus is so proud of you. You don't have to pity yourself. Christ has enough pity and mercy for you. And he will not forget your labors. He will not forget your sufferings. He will vindicate you. He will not forget your willingness to press through the sufferings and hardships and unfair criticism and slander all in the name of love for his struggling bride, the church. And you will have your reward. He's going to crown you. He is going to celebrate you. He is going to look you in your eyes with pride in his eyes and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I promise you, it will be worth it. Do not pity the pastorate. Perhaps it's the worst job in the world, but it's the greatest calling in heaven. Okay, that's more than enough with my (laughs) mistakes. I certainly have more, but those are some unique ones that came to mind as I uh, processed my uh, years in pastoral ministry. In the next episode, I'll share some unique uh, thoughts and reflections to those of you in the pews. But for now, do us a favor and like, subscribe, review, all that good stuff. Uh, By the way, if you send this to your pastor, make sure you do so in the right spirit with a word of thanksgiving for the job they are doing. And we will be back soon with another episode of Every Square Inch.